Hello, everybody, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Alex Steed. I will be joined by my illustrious co-host, Sarah Marshall, in a couple of minutes. Today, we're covering Misery, page to screen, the book and the movie, and uh, whether or not you've read it, whether or not you have watched it, whether or not you are a horror fan, I think that there's something for everyone in this conversation. We cover these movies, we cover movies generally to talk through the more universal elements of the genre and what's on screen or what's on the page. And so you don't personally have to experience the horror if you don't want to. I love it when we cover horror and folks say like, that's not my bag, but I listened and I got a lot out of it. That means a lot to us. So uh, yeah, just a little heads up. And hey, just a quick content warning. This is horror. (laughs) This is Stephen King. We don't go into very deep detail, but there are certainly mentions of violence, of gore. We talk about mental health issues. We talk about mine and other folks. We talk about addiction, talk about captivity. And we also talk about the problematic language that is used in King's writing, particularly with regard to race, rape, and sexual assault. Most of these sensitive topics happen in the last 20 to 30 minutes of the episode. If listening, or thinking about these things isn't in the cards for you today. We just want you to know ahead of time. There are other episodes that don't contain these types of content warnings. Actually, I'd say the vast majority of our episodes. So go back and check those out instead. Finally, we talk about many of the valid critiques and criticisms of King and how they inform our relationship with his texts as fans. We recognize both here and in this conversation that being able to even just engage with his writing comes from a place of privilege. And so we try to have a nuanced conversation about how to engage when we have emotional connections with uh, works and writers that have these problematic elements. And in this episode, I think we're actively working through a tough and imperfect ongoing conversation that needs to happen about who's allowed to have voice in the canon. And we're trying to be open, honest, and vulnerable about that. So I hope you'll keep that in mind while listening. It's a... It's terrifying sometimes to be honest and vulnerable and open in front of more than one person at a time. (laughs) So thank you. I appreciate your gentleness. It's worth saying, though, you know, your experience as a reader or viewer is as privileged as mine is. You should do everything you can by way of the voices you encounter and receive and seek out to ensure that they reflect a diverse and broad set of experiences. And just as important, pursue voices that go deep and critical. You know, we'll all be better for that. So uh, that's it, man. I'm excited to share this with you. But first, you should know You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everyone uh, who supports us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash You Are Good. You get a couple bonus episodes a month if you support us over there. We just talked about the Titanic dead, the Titanic recovery efforts, and uh, we answered a bunch of your questions about ourselves, our lives, our perspectives, etc. And that was a very well-received episode. Thanks for listening and thanks for enjoying it. And we just covered, and just like that, the second half of the the season of And Just Like That, the Sex and the City sequel. I think you'll enjoy it. And You Are Good is made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work there at these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Oh, one, one quick thing. I say in this episode, I just strongly want to encourage you to check it out the interview with James Gunn (laughs) 
on Mark Maron's WTF is so great. Mark Maron, as I mentioned in this episode, talks about the 70s era of the tough Jewish protagonist, the Elliot Gould, uh, James Kahn era. And I love it. I love the conversation that those two have. It is fantastic. So I just want to make sure that you... If that's your thing, I just want to make sure that you seek it out. You are good, everybody. Thank you so much for doing this thing with us. We appreciate you. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Bonjour, Alex Steed. Today's a big day. It's a gigantic day. I feel so pumped. We are talking about misery, page to screen. We sure are. We sure are. <laughs> uh, we've talked about this here and there, like in a piecemeal way, like what the rules of the show are, because we we don't say them explicitly because we don't know what they are. Yeah. But I like that at some point it just became a thing where if we talk about Stephen King, it's page to screen. <laughs> well, because I instituted it as a thing and you were like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> What's your relationship with misery? How does it factor into your life? Misery represents a portion of the legendary Rob Reiner hot streak of the late 80s, early 90s, which partially only revealed itself to be a hot streak later because nobody liked The Princess Bride when it first came out, Mm. from what I've heard. But then every millennial grew up watching it 45 to 85 times. And so it did well as a rental title. And then you have When Harry Met Sally, and then you have this. So like this is like an iconic movie, and I think people grew up with a a really clear sense of Kathy Bates in it, yeah, especially, and The Silence of the Lambs both kind of made horror respectable as a genre and like an Oscar-y genre. It felt like weird that this was a movie that like regular people saw because yes. it was horror, but it was okay because like there wasn't a dream yeah. demon in it because it had James Caan in it or something. Yeah. <laughs> They were like, it's got Jimmy Kahn. Absolutely. They're like, they don't, but it's, there's no 17 year old nude girls butchered. So it's, it's art. Yeah. It's just James Kahn getting butchered. Which is kind of great, really. Like James yes. Kahn, the, the, as Mark Marin refers to him from the era of tough Jews. <laughs> I can't imagine a tougher man to just get the shit kicked out of him for a whole movie. Exactly. <laughs> what to you is the most iconic thing about James Caan in The Godfather, which is probably his most iconic role until this? Yeah, I feel like you have a take on this and I'd, I'd love to know what your take is, but I'm a person who just remembers like faces in, in gravity and like vibe. Like that's what I remember. And I just remember he's just like, he's just like quietly menacing. Right. His persona seems a little bit like the way you describe your dad. Yes. Sometimes you got to take care of it. You got to just escalate a situation real fast (laughs) and scare the shit out of somebody or kill them or whatever. And then you move on. But also how they shot that character like 75 times or something. Yeah. Maybe it was only like 30 times, but it was an incredible number of times. I think because the movie recognized that people weren't going to believe that this wonderful larger than life giant like horse dick man of a character (laughs) could possibly die after being only shot like seven times and he's just like in his prime as a young man and he just like is this bringer of street justice and i i imagine that's how a lot of people thought of him going into this movie yeah totally he like in this movie like our introduction to him and it's pays off in plot because it needs to happen Mm -hmm. in this way but like this is a man Who lights a match with his thumbnail. Yes. (laughs) That's all you need. 
You're like, spent a lot of time in pool halls, Digja. <laughs> this is a tough-ass old man. And he's not even that old. He was probably like in his 40s when he made this, but he has the skin of a hot 60-year-old. Oh, he sure does. He has the gnarly fingers of a man who's served in three wars. <laughs> his fingers are spicy. Yeah. Yes. That's beautiful. You're so good at describing James Conn. I love him so much. This man has the vibe and disposition in so many ways of my father. The whole like, is it tough or is it I don't know how to get along with someone emotionally and so I'm going to beat him to the punch and not let him in. Like there's there's a lot mm-hmm. of that going on. It feels like it would be uncomfortable to be in a room with him where he was not talking. Mm-hmm. He was recent. Speaking of Mark Marin earlier, he was recently on WTF, which is wow, great. <laughs> and I would argue he didn't say anything. Like he talked for an hour, <laughs> didn't offer anything. He was almost entirely persona. Yeah. And he has this hilarious ongoing in joke on Twitter where he ends every tweet with end tweet, which suggests that he's dictating his. <laughs> His ah. tweets into the phone and right. just keeps ending. And pretending <laughs> he's like talking into a dictaphone for the girl in the office. <laughs> we, there's, I think that there's some stuff probably to cover in gender politics here. I can't imagine why. <laughs> but yeah, turning the turning the table here and making our scary monster who, in the book at least, in a way that I don't think really translates in the movie because we spend so much time in the book in Paul's head. Mm -hmm. In the book, this monster is a metaphor for audience. Mm -hmm. But in this movie, it's like adorable Kathy Bates. I know. She's so cute. She's so cute. (laughs) She's like a chipmunk that comes to your campsite and just wants a sunflower seed. She is. And then occasionally reveals herself to be a saber tooth tiger. (laughs) Yes. And you're like, oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Keep an eye on that chipmunk. I know. That's the thing. I think that she's able to be like at least eight times as scary in the book because of that. What do you think? Yeah, I think totally. Like, because in the book, if you accept her as a metaphor, I accept a lot of how she's described. (laughs) If you accept Mm -hmm. her as like an actual person, it's like she's just like a shapeless, joyless, frumpy child murderer. Not a great personal ad. There's one point where Paul is going through her scrapbook and we see we see a younger picture of her through his eyes. Mm -hmm. And it's revealed that she was once not a terrifying frumpy monster, Mm -hmm. which is cool. She's always kind of a monster. And so there are tonal shifts, but like it's always kind of simmering. And I think the thing to your original question, the thing about Kathy Bates in this is it can be easy to forget when she was just bad five minutes ago when she comes back as adorable Kathy Bates. And so the switch is is hard. Yeah, it's just like it feels real when she's in like human mode or at least at least like realer. Right. The effort to performance is so intense. And in the book, you're not forced to read the character with that much humanity. Honestly, like this movie is surprisingly faithful to the text of the book. There are things that are different with some exceptions of trying to simplify some sort of complicated scenes and with taking out a lot of what happens in the book Misery Returns, which I do not care about. And putting on the Goldman spit shine, which is like, what if we liked one character 
Just one character. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The thing that stood out to me with this read of Misery, and I haven't read Misery, I think, for maybe 20 years Mm. before this. Imagining the character, imagining Annie in the book as Leatherface. Mm. Because like she's just like spends so much time inside. Like she doesn't know how to deal with the expectations. The thing that makes her scariest is she's not doing anything that she thinks is inherently evil. Or when she's able to see that she has done something bad her process of changing her narrative about it so quickly is just absolutely terrifying. Yes. You know, it's hard to not compare your villains with other villains. But I also was thinking the stay of Paul is much more grisly in the book than it is even in this movie where it's still upsetting. It really is. It really it's intense. It really reminded me of Seven. It reminded me of that guy John Doe keeps in the apartment for a year. Sloth. Yeah, just to like prove a point. It's so weird. What a weird guy. John Doe, you're weird. (laughs) In the book, like Annie is scarier than John Doe. Oh, Annie is one trebillion times scarier than John Doe. Because here's the thing about John Doe, man, is that John Doe is like, I'm a murderer. And so therefore I am going to make my entire apartment like a scary art gallery experience about how I'm a murderer. (laughs) And I'm going to shave off my fingerprints. And weirdest of all, I'm going to drink tea. And Annie feels so real to me because she is dancing as fast as she can trying to be normal giving it like Mm -hmm. 125 percent but she does have a scrapbook about all her murders because she is still proud of that so okay so what's misery about what's the deal misery is about a novelist named paul sheldon who has become very popular and rich writing a series of romance novels about a heroine named misery chastain and they sound really fun (laughs) (laughs) But he has just killed Misery off at the end of the latest Misery novel so he can move on and write literary novels and stop writing Misery novels because he's tired of being the Misery guy. And so he finishes the novel. He's at the hotel in Colorado that he always goes to to finish a novel. He smokes his ceremonial cigarette. He drinks some Dom DeLuise. (laughs) That's an in-joke. And... And then he, Alex, how would you describe his driving in the following sequence? Okay, so (laughs) in the movie, we know that this man was born in Worcester, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. We know that this man has spent at least a lot of time in, in New York. We know that this man is from New England. He is in Colorado. In the book, he's in Sidewinder. Closest town to the Overlook. Around where The Shining takes place. And he knows that snow exists. He's heard of it. This man has a vintage early 60s Mustang, maybe late 50s Mustang, that he is driving down the side of a mountain in the middle of an active unplowed snowstorm at like 75 miles per hour. The way the groundhog drives in Groundhog Day. Like he's just like, it's inappropriate. And like, that's my only, I don't have any complaints for Rob Reiner generally once in a while, uh, maybe a tweet. I will, if I, he could have run it by me, we could have talked about it for a yeah. second. But I do think that this is a scene directed by a man who grew up in California. Or perhaps does this just maybe in a way that was not intended set you up to like hate this character. Just be like, well, it sounds like someone's asking to get their legs broken in 36 places. 
Exactly. It's if this man is driving like this, like no one deserves what he got, but you will see a consequence of your actions if you drive like this down the side of a snowy mountain. Right. Okay. So one of the things that happened to me in the past year that like further made me love misery even more, I was driving to Denver last April and I was on the Loveland Pass and the snow was really coming down and I had a couple moments of the car getting slippy and I was like, hmm, well, I think I'm going to reroute and drive a different way because I don't want to crash and break all my bones. Mm -hmm. This is a cautionary tale about not doing this exact thing that probably a lot of people do every year, honestly. Yeah. But like Paul Sheldon, I was numb to the joys of human life. So (laughs) (laughs) that's the other thing is like Paul's struggling with some stuff like Paul's got some addiction issues. There's a hollowness in Paul's life. Like there's some stuff that Paul's sorting through. So like maybe that's why he was driving angry. Right. That's kind of what I think. And so anyway, he obviously spins out of control and his car rolls down a mountain and it's very scary, especially because we've just been listening to Shotgun, which is a very merry kind of opening credits song. And you're like, oh, what could go wrong when the opening credits song is playing? <laughs> so he's fucked. And then somebody crowbars open the door and deadlifts him out of the depths, like the human jaws of life. Just like, do to do. Like when I get like a big economy bag of cereal at the grocery store, <laughs> I'm like, huh. <laughs> Get on my back, Jimmy Con. <laughs> Jimmyos, they'll give you moxie. <laughs> Amazing. And so he wakes up, and this very merry lady named Annie Wilkes is taking care of him and shows him his horrible, sad, broken legs that she has taken care of. And she's like, The snowstorm's still too bad, and the long distance lines are down. This like Groundhog Day, we've done two movies this month where long distance lines are down. His legs, by the way, look like a Ziploc bag full of prunes. <sighs> it's very hard to look at. Yeah, I think one of the great things about this story is both a book and a movie is that like all the horror you need is right there and just like how fragile people are and how easy it is to like roll off the side of a cliff or have a person who means you ill have ultimate power over you somehow it's a thing that happens so yeah she's initially very sweet and then she reveals her true nature first when she finishes the new misery book and realizes that he has killed misery and injures him intentionally and then leaves and in the book this is like a harrowing sequence where she's gone for several days she's dealing with something that's not rigidly diagnosed in the book but she's certainly Mm -hmm. going through manic highs and lows and when she goes through her lows i forget what she calls it exactly but like she goes she essentially like has some place that she goes to ride out her she had a second residence like truly it was a different economy where she rides out her like depressive stretches yeah it's like Annie you're like a former nurse who can't work anymore because you murdered a bunch of people like how are you affording two homes it is really interesting her level of self-awareness around that where she's like if I stay here I'll do something bad yeah and so she has Paul in prison. She then reads the manuscript for his next novel that he just finished and forces him to burn it. First, she tells him that, oh, she's like, I talked to your agent 
and told her what's going on. And I talked to the doctor and he said that it's fine to keep you here and everything's going to be great. And then she reveals at a low point that she hasn't talked to anybody. Nobody knows where he is. And if I die, you die, which is like the scariest fucking thing to be told by an expressionless person whose face is lit like the moon. (laughs) (laughs) So she decides she gets a message from God, actually, that he needs to write her a new misery novel where he will resurrect misery. And Paul figures out that this is his Scheherazade moment where he will be able to live for as long as he's writing this story. And she gives him this gigantic, heavy, old typewriter with a missing N key to type on. He, as his strength builds, because he's in horrific pain, she's also got him hooked on pain meds, which she's giving to him a little bit too freely. She's giving him medical care, which she like, she kind of like mostly knows what she's doing, but she's she's making a lot of mistakes. As is said in the book, she didn't know as much as what she was doing as she believed she did. Right. There's no one more terrifying than a person in authority doing exactly that thing. <laughs> yes. And who like can't be questioned about potentially not knowing something because she might kill you or whatever. We're laughing because what else can you do? What else can you do? That's the thing. That's what I love about Annie. I have known quite a few Annies in my life. Like I have been close to the Annie demeanor. Like nobody's kidnapped me or cut my spoiler. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) but I know that character and I feel like through my experience of being human can even access some aspect of that character. The book draws Annie so in such a detailed way that it's like, it just feels like it comes from very real knowledge. And it's also interesting to me that Stephen King's most iconic villains are like a shape-shifting monster who appears as a clown, (laughs) a lady named Annie, and a guy named Jack. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and Carrie's mom. Carrie's mom is also incredibly scary. Also a mom. Yeah. Mm, Also a religious mom. Nothing scarier than a scary mom who's like, listen, bitch, God told me to be scary. It's worth noting that like Annie in the book is taking orders from her mom. Right. But like Annie is regularly following some sort of order set by her mother who she loves and reveres and who sounds like it had maybe an issue or two. Yeah. And so so Paul, as he regains his strength, he starts secretly escaping his room, picking the lock with a bobby pin getting out and getting supplies, getting pain medication, getting a knife, reading Annie's scrapbook of all the murders that she's committed, where he learns that as a nurse, she went to trial for allegedly killing a lot of babies. She also killed a lot of senior citizens, which is like, there's like quite a number of cases of people doing that. We're having some kind of job that put them in contact with the sickly or the elderly or little kids and just like killing a bunch of them and not being noticed and often women totally i know you haven't seen it yet but like this there's a character in yellow jackets that is Mm. full annie shit and we're on her side Mm. which i love and she's like works in a nursing home and it's a very interesting feat to somehow get the audience on the side of a person who's committing elder abuse which is absolutely Mm. happening with this character and they're played by Christina Ricci in a way where even when she smiles you're like oh god that is terrifying (laughs) (laughs) so Annie figures out that Paul has been getting out of his room and snooping around and so she decides 
In the movie, famously, she puts a piece of firewood between his ankles and breaks both of his ankles with a sledgehammer. It is rough. And in the book, even more roughly, I would say, she cuts his foot off with an axe and cauterizes it with a little blowtorch. Her rationale in both pieces Mm -hmm. is she explains that this is a thing called hobbling which was done in the quote early days of mining of diamond mining maybe the kimberly diamond mines paul it's a terrible thing a couple things are revealed in that like one like she's already i think she dropped the n-word once in the book already so we already know that Mm. she's you know she's got some uh regressive ideas although who doesn't in a stephen king book without a doubt you know she essentially says that it's done so that people can keep working and i don't mean to show Mm -hmm. my ignorance of how how this sort of labor works but what kind of work can you still do if someone cuts your foot off with an axe and i might like sorting stuff like filing paperwork yeah i guess you can sort diamonds I feel like diamond sorting is a job. She says something along the lines of like, it would be like getting rid of a Mercedes because you broke yeah. the rear view mirror or something. I was like, what a because weird Because it had analogy. a broken spring. She's yeah. so cute. <laughs> I just love that. That exchange was so interestingly revealing about her. I was like, all right. Right. It's like, Annie, like, what are you, do you like sit around reading about diamond mine history in your spare time? Because that just feels very true to what other stuff I know about you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, she hobbles him. And then in the book, we have a time skip where she goes farther and the gore like really increases. We have, she like cuts his thumb off. We have a few cops, a few different cops visit the house instead of just one nice cop played by Richard Farnsworth, which is what we get in the movie. This is a movie where Frances Sternhagen, Bunny McDougal from Sex and the City receives third billing, which I think is like, (laughs) what a wonderful thing. Yeah. But she also tries to give her husband slash sheriff a tug job in the car while they're driving, which I... (laughs) appreciate (laughs) in this movie when it does make a choice it's so fucking good because Mm -hmm. their relationship the dynamic of the relationship between this old ass couple Mm -hmm. and her sarcasm and his like rebutting the sarcasm it's clearly the Reiners it feels like he's channeling the dynamic of his parents and was like let's put it in a movie it's shocking he didn't put his actual parents in it it probably would have been distracting (laughs) We would have just had like Sheriff Carl Reiner <laughs> and then they could have done a sitcom spinoff prequel like Better Call Saul. Oh man, what a missed opportunity. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that's also, that's the William Goldman talk. She wrote the screenplay for this. Mm. And I realized this is also like, especially through the Farnsworth Sternhagen scenes a comedy western like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which he also wrote oh I love that yeah and so there are additions that are totally new to the movie because in the book we don't leave actually the way that we leave the room or Annie's house is through Paul's memory or through his writing this book and like the books the scenes inside of the misery book or the escape I don't know I feel like there's like balance on the plate this way where it's like we get these sweet scenes with this adorable couple who are quipping at each other the whole time they're like tracy and hepburn or something they are like tracy and hepburn because she's like i swim to an island every morning oh that was bad that was good (laughs) thank you 
It helped that you said who it was, but I do. Right. <laughs> it also is a like fabulous reminder that if you're going to go missing, don't go missing in a town that only has... One 80-year-old man as the sheriff. Actually, actually you might be better off. Cause <laughs> right. From what we've seen from police work, right. I'd say this guy did better. Mm-hmm. Well, and also look at the fact that then they find Paul's car in the movie and all of this swarm of news media and, I don't know, state police maybe federal investigators, whatever, all these higher authorities come in and they miss the very obvious fact, which Buster notices, that somebody has opened the door with a crowbar. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to do a a quick impression of the press conference they have, which is in front of this flipped over car that they're pulling out of the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And the guy's like, well, it's clear he's dead. (laughs) Here's his car. His corpse is probably out there somewhere, buried by a bunch of snow. We'll see it in the thaw, probably. I don't know. And then they're like, and then they turn to, <laughs> they turn to the news people. And they're like, well, you heard it here. Paul's dead. <laughs> that scene is so fucking great. It's so funny. <laughs> this is another thing, because it's not that the book isn't funny. It's just that nothing that is depicted is ever funny. But it's funny because we're inside the mind of... Paul Sheldon who is funny and we're like hearing his thoughts and he's like highly verbal and kind of a smart ass like all Stephen King heroes kind of are honestly he's entertaining and there's levity through that so you need to replicate that in some way that you can't do the way it was done in the book and I feel like that works really well Mm -hmm. like that's the kind of thing that book Paul Sheldon would imagine happening I think yeah I agree so anyway spring is here In the book, Summer Comes, the law is closing in on Annie. She kills a cop who comes by looking for Paul. In the book, she kills multiple cops, actually. One of them with a lawnmower, and it's like fucking harrowing. It is, ah. It's grisly. Part of what we see in the book, again, because this is like an emotional journey, is that he's being emotionally broken down and destroyed as well. And he's sort of struggling with the idea that, It's his fault that Annie has killed these people Mm -hmm. because if he hadn't tried to get help, then she wouldn't have done it. The replication in his condition of the feeling of being a helpless child with an abusive parent is like just one of the scariest things that I've ever read. In chapter one, I think, when it becomes evident that their dynamic of their relationship and what's going on with him, the very first thing where he changes his behavior and notices his change in behavior is developing a sense of anticipatory empathy so that he can navigate. Right. I don't, I actually don't know much about Stephen King's actual relationship with his parents, his childhood. I don't, and I know Mm -hmm. that he himself was the monster in his household for a while because of his Mm -hmm. drink and stuff. I was like, this is a person who knows if not physical abuse, certainly emotional control, manipulation stuff. Mm-hmm. And these are the things I get cautious of when people are like, I'm an empath. I'm like, interrogate that. Mm-hmm. Because maybe you do feel more for people in a way that is very important and like helps you navigate the world and like helps you be a good person or whatever. But also maybe you learned to be that way in order to survive in a fucked up situation. Mm-hmm. It's very true. What really stresses me out to further deviate from the synopsis, sorry, is when people on Reddit or whatever are like, I'm an empath. And because of that, I have no boundaries at all. And it's good. I'm an empath. And it's like, no, no, you have to have boundaries or you'll 
desiccate. Often we learned to have no boundaries because the people that made us, quote, empaths Mm -hmm. were people who refused to allow us to have boundaries. Yes. And then you're like 28 and you're like, what is boundary? (laughs) Okay. So anyway, synopsis. Annie decides that Johnny Law is going to close in. And so she's like, Paul, you and I must die together like lovers. He's like, wait, first you must let me finish the misery novel. I can do it really quick. (laughs) And so he does. Then he uses the tactic that she used on him so many months ago where he threatens to burn the misery manuscript. And then, wait, what are the mechanics of this? I just watched this the other day and I'm already... Well, in the movie, he's threatening to burn the manuscript and he does Mm -hmm. and when he does she goes down for it and he throws the typewriter on her head yeah and she's the type of person who can throw jimmy Kahn on her back so that only Mm -hmm. does so much and she goes after him and lunges after him and is trying to strangle him and she finally says and there's a running joke about how she's does not like profanity Mm -hmm. and she finally says as she does in the book she calls him a cocksucker Mm -hmm. after a lot of tussling and sort of like back and forth and he's in a wheelchair mind you and his legs look like uh, plastic bag prunes and she ends up falling and tripping and splitting her head open on the typewriter Mm -hmm. i think he hits her at least once with like a hammer too i don't know how that ends up happening but he hits her with like this cast iron pig shaped doorstop yes that's it and in the book it's it's like a similar tussle a similar sort of sleight of hand exchange but it went on for longer right exactly this is like the only book that has ever done a jump scare on me I will add. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> you think she's down. And then Annie gets up again and starts coming again. And you're like, oh, my God. Like when it, the first time I read that, I literally jumped. Yeah. <laughs> and she keeps showing up. Yes. But like in what would probably be 20 pages, she mm-hmm. pops up like four more times. I know. She's like a jack in the box. And they're figments of his imagination, but it's pulled off so well that because like yeah. the way that it's handled in the movie, 18 months later, this just shows culturally where we're at. 18 months later, he's having lunch with his agent and she's like, she's like, I thought you were over it. I know. Oh, my God. It's like, Lauren, I realized that you married Humphrey Bogart on a boat when you were 19. But, like, society has come a long way, baby. <laughs> and in the book, like, it's like doing a relatively nuanced job of being like, no, this is a thing this man's going to live with for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. And the movie knows that. But, like, Lauren Bacall knows that. And the expectation is that it's like nobody who hadn't been kidnapped would necessarily understand. In the book, we do get, like, a pretty prolonged epilogue about Paul in New York struggling with this intense PTSD and then I really love the ending he gets inspired for the first time since he was I don't know if he was inspired when he was with Annie but inspired for the first time in a really long time to write something and he goes home and starts writing and that's like the redemptive final moment which I really love and feels very hopeful it's so transparent like what Stephen King's dealing with it's like this this is a man who started writing a kind of fiction that he got recognized for Mm -hmm. and then felt like he was trapped in because of like audience expectation, because of like industry expectation, because of all this different stuff. He finally writes his book where when he's done, he imagines himself winning like a national book award. Mm -hmm. He's finally done a thing. And it takes bravery, right? Because like he finally Mm -hmm. killed off the character that represented that kind of fiction he was doing. Mm-hmm. finally writes the book and somebody representing the oppressiveness of fan and industry expectation makes him 
burn the book. Yeah. And then traps him into writing another fucking version of the book that he hates so much. And in the epilogue, we get to see that he is finally after like processing or dealing with shit or being haunted or whatever. He is able to like start another book that is not the kind that he feels trapped in. I know that people talk a lot about how Annie represents addiction, which I think is totally true. And as Mm. far as I know, Stephen King has talked about being true. But I also feel like she represents contracts. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I don't know if it's Annie specifically. And uh, the imprisonment is doing two things really, really well. And one is, yes, it's contracts and agreements. And again, like expectation and all that stuff. And the other is she's like this embodiment of what it's like to be addicted to something and not be able to like be in your own body. Hmm. Like the way that she treats Paul is like addiction. The circumstance of his imprisonment. There are many parts in the book where it's so interestingly self-aware where He's like, yeah, it's like part her, but it's also part me. Mm -hmm. And that is for sure a thing that one processes through addiction, man, like through like interrogating their addiction where it's like, yeah, it's like these circumstances for sure. Like there is a bar in every corner. It is really easy to get coke, like whatever the thing is. But like I need to work on something in me that is like keeps bringing me back to this thing. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes it's kind of absurd because addiction is such a strong thing that it isn't just a matter of personal agency. That's what I thought was so interesting about him having these feelings when he's trapped is yeah, like your feelings are one way or another. Maybe that's something you got to deal with when you get out of this situation, but you're in this situation. You need to get out of this situation. Sometimes that's the deal with addiction, right? Is that it's mm. like, you're not going to solve it all at once. You just need to get out of, it's a one day at a time thing. You just need to like get out of the like trap that you're in and then start working from there. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about just kind of what you get when you translate this into a normal movie. Mm. Not like something that's intentionally trying to be like really difficult to get through. Like it is difficult to get through because you watch someone have their ankles intentionally broken with a sledgehammer and stuff like that. And a beloved character get shot. But there's a few models of faithful book adaptation. And one is the Rosemary's Baby model where you have something so short that you can actually fit basically all of the content of the book into your movie. And then you have something where you have to pick and choose maybe like 30% of the material and compress events and sort of show the flow of scenes of important scenes. I don't know the book just like, it's a long book. It kind of imprisons you. I'll put it that way. Mm. And it imprisons you in the book it's talking about too. Yeah. The other thing that I think the book is doing is like, showing you what it's like to write a thing Mm -hmm. which I think is fascinating and for all the times that we were like in the misery novel I was like "Eh, like I don't really I don't so much care about this but it's you don't care about my misery (laughs) yeah not so much but like I did like it was about the act of writing a thing and what choices are made and how those choices are made and what is a false choice and what is not a false choice and like Mm -hmm. where inspiration comes from like in my experience this is one of the better books I've ever read about the process of writing Mm -hmm. and I think the only one I can think of that is strictly fiction Mm -hmm. you know we we see a lot of these themes come out in on writing (laughs) yeah that's not for another 15 or 16 years until after this is published (laughs) that's so funny Yeah, and there's just something about the amount of time that we spend with someone who's essentially trapped in his own brain. Annie just is, I don't know, maybe the most human villain I can think of. I just really appreciate that. 
I feel like if misery came out today and I don't know what the read is on misery, like I don't know what our cult, what, what the culture has agreed upon mm-hmm. is the read on misery. But I feel like if misery came out today, there would be interrogation of the portrayal of Annie mm-hmm. and actually like surprisingly aware in seemingly modern ways. Stephen King has at least identified, you know, that there's something going on internally in her that it seems like she probably can't help. Mm-hmm. But like my counter on that read would be, Paul's fucked up. Yeah. I love that. It's sometimes annoying when I look at how people, how audiences respond to things. No, never. Not once. And I think that they really want narratives to make decisions for them. And that drives me up a wall. It's like Annie's out of her head and she's a villain and it's scary. We need the book to explicitly say the same exact thing plus a little more from Paul for it to be morally okay. Hmm. But if you just read Paul, mm-hmm. Paul's not doing okay. And he has like some self-awareness of that sometimes and sometimes he doesn't. But then when he gets it, he's like, oh yeah, I'm super bugged up. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. I love that a lot. Like, I don't think that this is for any determination Stephen King is making about Annie through Paul. Mm-hmm. Stephen King's also like, I'm that shitty dude in a bed. Yeah. And Paul doesn't deserve what he's getting, but like Paul isn't sitting on a pedestal himself. No, it's important to have protagonists who are also you know we're struggling before this whole imprisonment thing and yeah Paul is like I think represents maybe the kind of hateful side that Stephen King could access when he wrote which maybe the Bachman books are about as well and I also feel like there's something very appropriate and weird and maybe a little eerie about the fact that Misery is about like writing a book that's going to be your escape from the genre that made you famous and being forced by a fan to destroy it. Richard Bachman, the pseudonym was found out by, I don't know if it was a fan, but like a random member of the public who Hmm. forced this book to be another Stephen King book, which I think if it had been published as this other guy who people didn't have those Stephen King associations with, people could have recognized its quality more. Mm. What do you think of the, the quality of, of writing and, and I don't know the like, I guess I think this book is like really good. That's how I'm going to put it. <laughs> I don't mean this to sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's the least draggy Stephen King book I've ever read. Which is amazing because it's a guy in a bed the whole time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like what he has done in order to make this work is fascinating. Mm-hmm. My read on it is like it's pretty thinly veiled processing big themes through all of this and I think he does that really well and like we only really have to spend time with two characters which is also extremely helpful. It's beautiful writing. Mm. I tweeted it it was a joke and but it was also real that Misery is the best book about the potential pitfalls of parasocial relationships I've ever read. Very anticipatory, just like Sleepless in Seattle. It really is. And it was interesting, like a lot of people were like, yeah. And then I heard from a couple of people, which was really interesting, talking about how their relationships with creators, I hate the word creators, but I'm going to use it, with like people who make things on the internet. Sometimes that whole parasocial relationships are weird thing can feel like the creator or maker or the whoever hedging 
their manipulative relationship with their audience, which I found interesting because like, I think that that's probably, that can be true the way that the Mm -hmm. internet works. Like everyone is involved in one way or another than it was in the time of misery when it was like, you're the writer, Mm -hmm. there is an audience. It's very rare that you are all Mm -hmm. engaging in the same way. And I think that there's probably some truth to that, but I still stand by my feeling about in what's represented in this book where it's like both the figurative expectation can feel like it's going to crush you in one way or another, or it's at the very least fucking annoying. And Mm -hmm. the literal expectation of, I love you so much. I have to kill you. These are both real things that exist in the world. And that's what make them absolutely scary. Or I love you so much. I don't know that my behavior is going to kill you in one way or another, but I'm using you to process some shit that I can't even see myself processing. Yeah. There's a comparatively limited amount of people who engage this show compared Mm -hmm. to other people's shows or whatever. But like Mm -hmm. 99% of the time, like people are very, very self-aware of their relationship and the back and forth and how limited it is and like how it's nice, but there are limitations. And Mm -hmm. what I feel about this person is more about me than it is about them or whatever. There is an awareness there. But once in a while when it crosses a boundary mm-hmm. it's immediately scary and i don't think people fully can appreciate that and then sometimes for the more attention a person gets and the more potential backlashes there are all that stuff the weight of that scariness can become a whole lot yes and that's one of the things i really appreciate about annie because i am a huge proponent of villains who don't self-identify as villainous Mm -hmm. this is one of the things that i think makes criminal minds like such a fantasy show because like by season seven you have like i'm the porcelain doll murderer (laughs) one of the things that stops people from realizing how much power they have in a situation is not conceiving of themselves as powerful and i think that's one of the more dangerous fictions people can tell themselves yes especially When a person is in crisis. Yes. Like Annie is kind of a lot. Right. To acknowledge the scariness isn't meant to diminish the gravity of crisis. Mm -hmm. But like usually when someone is in crisis, they don't fully grasp that because they're in crisis and they feel the weight of the crisis. They don't think that their agency or like what they're bringing to a situation is has any gravity at all because they actually barely acknowledge that they have any gravity at all. Mm-hmm. And that really makes things ripe for inadvertently dumping a lot of weight on the person where all of that is being channeled or the people where that's being channeled. Yeah. But I want to be clear, like by no means am I suggesting that like people who are in crisis shouldn't reach out to people who can help them, whatever. That all mm-hmm. needs to happen. That's important, particularly within sort of like friend and relational circles. But Sometimes it's just not clear to the people who are going through it, like what ultimately they're going through. And as a result, like what gets on the people who they end up projecting their situation onto Mm -hmm. becomes difficult to manage, difficult to navigate and very sometimes very scary and sometimes not just very scary, like sometimes dangerous. Yeah. And I think I really I love Annie and fear Annie as a character because she's someone who I identify with to the extent that I have limited control over my moods and I have unpredictable moods and I'm not a scary person. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. We just all have the potential to be scary. And this is kind of a story. I just feel like misery, but partly, and I, I, I feel like this is true for Stephen King too. 
but reading it, I see it as like a like take care of yourself, Sarah. <laughs> <story>. <laughs> like, A, I don't think I'm at risk of getting to the point where I'm kidnapping writers or anything. Why would I want another writer in my house? Um, and B, because like, I'm not going to run a whole fucking farm to that degree of tidiness. Like Annie's just like in a way, like very high functioning, yes. but only about chores. But anyway. Yeah. And I know and what I do want to indicate just to make sure all bases are covered is the only mm-hmm. reason I can recognize any of this is because I have been in that crisis right several times and usually out in the world creating the most possible damage when I'm not even sold on the fact that I am an entity right honestly one of the ideas Annie has that is maybe good not the way she's executing it but the way someone else could is like have another secret residence that you go to when you're like shouldn't be with other people but don't leave your cow unattended or your kidnap victim don't do that just fyi in this book there's a long scene very long to a cow that ultimately dies by way of neglect via via swollen udders it's terrible it is terrible if there's anywhere just like addiction neglect comes through, it's like all of those things that you remember in retrospect that like there's a strong chance you didn't you were just not aware were happening at the time. Yeah. Uh. The reason specific forms of mental health disorders and specific forms of like personality disorders and specific forms of, of prolonged addiction, mm-hmm. the addiction or whatever the thing is that's motivating it creates a circumstance in which a bad thing happens Mm -hmm. and your brain somewhere knows about that bad thing, but you are not fully aware of that bad thing. And now on top of being addicted or whatever, your brain is like, we need to do every possible thing to make sure you never touch. You never have to touch the acknowledgement of what happened Mm. and good thing you are living with addiction because we because that's an easy way to make sure that that you never have to touch that oh god (laughs) and then just like um, three months goes by yeah and then you're surrounded by wreckage and i mean and this is just this guides my dad's behavior in every interaction i have with him to this day he will swear that like he did a great job raising me despite his alcoholism but if he feels like the conversation is like the it's like the equivalent of if there's a Dunkin Donuts in this neighborhood and I'm driving within a quarter mile of that Dunkin Donuts, he like starts to freak out because what if we're going to Dunkin Donuts? Because he has to protect himself with every fiber of his being from being dragged into a Dunkin Donuts in a way that I don't think he understands. He feels like it will destroy him to be taken into that Dunkin Donuts. Yeah. And also like, what am I? But like, I'm. I'm a Dunkin' Donuts employee, you know? Mm -hmm. No one could remind him more of Dunkin' Donuts than me. Yeah. This is that thing that came up in the thing where I talked about like people surviving at each other. You know, all of my internalized responses for survival of childhood that I'm not aware of, I just lob at you. Yeah. And it's not even rooted in like what I'm going through. It's rooted in sort of like how I came to survive before, like going back to Paul, developing the empathy in order to survive that situation. I throw it at you and then you have a feeling about it and then you throw it at me and that just goes back and forth. And we take these things personally, totally understandably, because they created pain in us. Mm-hmm. We're very rarely able to go like, let's uh, untangle whatever the fuck this unconscious, subconscious mm-hmm. reflexive volley is, because it's not doing anyone any favors. It, in fact, is just killing you and hurting me. Paul is also interesting because he's such a solitary character. 
Mm. In both versions we have, like in the movie, he's someone who the only person we see him interact with aside from Annie is his agent. And also in the book, there's like, there's really, he's divorced. When we see him back in New York, he goes home to an empty apartment. He seems like a very alone person. And of course the book is about lengthy solitude aside from your jailer. That's there too, that there's this like deep loneliness of working through the issues, like to bring in some winner of my discontent stuff, like a feeling I've been having this week and trying to work on is like, just like thinking about like how much work I have to do to like get to a stable place emotionally and just being like, that's just too much work. I just can't do that. I just have to just lean into despair and just like die alone. That's not immediately, but eventually, you know, eventually just this idea of like, that's I know. It's overwhelming, especially when you're exhausted from having a pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I don't think the movie, be just because of like what a movie is, mm-hmm. I don't think that this goes as deep, obviously, for a lot of different mm-hmm. reasons, as the book does in, in sorting through all of the stuff that we're talking about right now. But it's still a hell of a ride. Mm-hmm. If you're uh, ready, the book really makes you confront a lot of stuff that's going on in your own life. This book is like rough sex, you know, you have to like sign (laughs) off on it and just be ready to get in there. And then afterwards you can read trucks. I try to put as many like potential complaints about Stephen King into some sort of context because I love him so much. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of times that rape comes up as as a violation of the author in this book that I'm like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it bookends the book too, like literally like in the beginning he feels and I'm using quotes and Mm -hmm. uh, paraphrasing but like he feels raped by her expectation and in the end he shoves the the rolled up manuscript down her throat and refers to it as raping her back yeah and i was like wowzers what you're saying about the feeling of being violated by this expectation i understand what you're saying yeah let's work on the language (laughs) Well, I guess the idea that it's like I have been violated commensurate to this concept and now I'm returned. Now I'm paying it back. And right. this is not a good idea to be spreading to your vast audience in your work as an author. And yet at the same time, it feels true of the character. But then also you control who the character is. So nah. I do think that this was the result of there not being a broader participatory pool of conversation about about experiences that were not boomer men's. Yeah. I just think he wasn't having these conversations because that was not happening in a broader mainstream way in 1990. Right. And it's just, it's important to put time into having your consciousness raised. And I can't believe I said that sentence. I sound like a character in a 70s sitcom. (laughs) You sound like Meathead. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) But also, like, to me, what stands out most about the book is that we have somehow... Somehow, Stephen King has found a way to put a black character speaking in dialect in ways that I certainly can't read aloud, nor perhaps could anyone. Yes. You're like, all right, well. I think it was a bad idea. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It is very easy, especially with regard to how we all relate to and with each other, especially on the Internet, which is not 
always or usually a place for deep nuance. Like that's for these conversations. Mm-hmm. And then the internet's like usually being like, is there a very low hanging or even just like medium hanging fruit here where I can go like, this is an example of a reason why this is a bad person who did a bad thing mm-hmm. with King. Like there are potentially a lot of those. If you take it in no context whatsoever, there's like at least seven or 800. I'm sure good yeah. deal of them. And by no means, like if you don't want to, read that and engage that and you don't want to feel sort of like not seen by that like there's please don't there's no reason to there's so much out in the world but i also get that this boomer from bangor maine clearly didn't leave the state very much until he got famous (laughs) right i guess it's just like it's a question of like are you able to have it not ruin it for you and that comes down to like luck and some forms of privilege i have the luxury of being able to do that of clear mind because these things are not a psychic attack on my existence. Right. I love Stephen King. I think on some level it's important to couch that and like I can. Right. I am constructed of Stephen King's world and I do acknowledge and understand that like if you are a person who feels hated by the world because of your body type and size and if you're fat or or whatever mm-hmm. the things are and you see that indicated by Stephen King and this is a this is an aside from other Stephen King commentary mm-hmm. you feel like that's a thing that he not only doesn't respect but that's a thing that has not been treated well and you can't engage the text as a result or you think that it's like a, a net bad i get it yeah i'm not asking you to have the same relationship with him that i have because i realize that my position is very specific well and there's i mean something too that i feel like people are talking about in really productive ways is this idea of the canon and what is important literature Mm. and why do girls grow up reading books by and about men and kind of having to learn how to care about men and think about men and not vice versa. Like, why could none of the Academy Awards voters understand Little Women? Mm-hmm. And I think Stephen King is kind of is part of that, too, because if you're going to read Stephen King, you're going to read a lot of male characters who are somewhat different from each other and a lot of female characters who all sound a lot like Stephen King's wife. But I guess, like, I don't have <laughs> a problem with that because, like, there's more men than women as protagonists, but they all basically seem like Stephen King and his women are like his wife and his men are like him. And I don't mind identifying with a bunch of characters who are like Stephen King or his wife. And also, if, if that gets tiring for you, then like that makes a lot of sense. I really thrive on repetition. And I think, I mean, I would just say what I always say, which is that I love that Stephen King recognizes that, or I assume he recognizes that the scariest thing about being a human is just like being a human. Yeah. I, I, yeah, totally. I think it's important to like receive those things, knowing that what gets accepted into a larger cultural canon is a fucked up thing. Mm-hmm. But like, also you're like, I know what it's like to hate myself a little bit. And that belongs in the canon too. There's not that much in little women about addiction and self-loathing. <laughs> I wanted to ask, cause you mentioned this in a text earlier that so much of this book is about like how writing works. Like, what do you think of, of that? So like the prison works on so many levels. The prison works on an addiction level. The prison works on a prison of expectations level, but the prison also seems to work on a, like you're in the project and there's no doing anything else until you're out of the project level. Mm-hmm. And we just hear so much about like how 
he makes choices and like when a choice is too forced and when a choice is not forced and when a choice has like a specific logic to it. And when, even if it has like a real world logic to it, why it won't work in fiction. And like, there are so many things about choice and process. This It didn't ever have to touch. Like this book never had to touch all that, but you could tell like mm-hmm. he was like, I'd love to talk about writing. <laughs> Where can I sneak that? And he just snuck it into like 20% of this book. (laughs) There's a lot in the book about Paul feeling like Annie, despite some of her character flaws, or perhaps because of them, who knows, is a very good reader. And she can spot a trick from a mile away and she won't accept it if it's not fair. This was played identically to how it in the book but in the movie Mm -hmm. it's so vivid we have annie describe and by the way like annie's brother's name was paul which is a thing that comes up but like is never we're just given that information and you're like do it with that what you want Hmm. she used to go to like serials cliffhanger movies with her brother and her favorite movie was rocket man and uh, one week, I love this so much, like one week we see that like Rocketman was put in a car and like the car door was welded shut and like there was like a weight put on the accelerator and basically he was like sent o- over a cliff. Mm-hmm. And the next week we go and they show Rocketman gets out in a specific way and everyone cheers and Annie, mm-hmm. she gets up and she's like, that's a lie. Like you cheated us. She was so angry that that is not how the cliffhanger ended Mm -hmm. there's something like incredibly beautiful about her fandom she's really committed to the text and you know she's processing some shit whatever and she's doing it through the text but i love how committed she is to the truth in fiction he didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car (laughs) (laughs) what's your like just your favorite part of the book or the movie that you just want people to engage hmm I don't know. It's hard to separate it into parts. I mean, the movie has some really funny moments. I think it's very user friendly. And I think it makes sense that they didn't have a full cutting off of a foot in it because that really (laughs) takes you into saw territory. Although I will say that fucking scene is not better in my head. (laughs) (laughs) The way his foot snaps the other direction. It's awful. It's I think it's an incredible scene that actually might be one of my favorite moments because like I mean not really because it's horrible but like the exit it just feels so real you're just like yep I bet that's what it would be like if someone cut your foot off <laughs> there's a moment that I think is just stunning where Annie has cut his foot off she's I think what makes Annie scary too is that she totally has this quality of condescending maternal that you get not just in moms but in like Doctors, nurses, teachers, people who have to deal with kids and aren't really listening. So Annie cuts off his foot in this like, this is for for your own good way. And then is like, I'll just take out the trash and then picks up his foot. Yes. Whose toes are still twitching and goes to throw it away. And he notices there's a scar on his instep for when he stepped on, I think, a piece of glass on the beach when he was a kid. He recalls that scar being from when he stepped on a, a broken bottle mm-hmm. at the beach. At, I think it was Revere Beach. And his dad tries to shut him up about it by saying, like, don't act like you've you've cut your foot off or something along those lines. And like, here we are with his yeah. cut off foot. Yeah. This is not very specific to the book, but like Stephen King notoriously loves rock and roll mm-hmm. as a genre. 
so much that he was in a, I think admitted by everyone, crappy band with Dave Barry and Amy Tan and like a, a handful of other people. Mm-hmm. There's often in any of his books, especially along this phase when he's like a still like a youngish rock and roll enthusiast, there's some descriptions of of rock and he's talking about remembering girls just want to have fun. Like he's remembering these specific parts of that song. Like he's missing sex or like cocaine. Like he's just like, I do anything to hear some rock and roll. I'd even settle for Ted Nugent, which is a really funny (laughs) rib of Ted Ted Nugent. And then in the movie, Annie is obsessed with Liberace. The truest, purest distillation of the antithesis of rock and roll is Liberace. I love Annie's Liberace obsession. And I also love how, I was going to say, I love how the movie handles the hobbling scene. I don't know. It's like each actor kind of at this apotheosis of expressing what their character is. And so we see James Caan having been really broken down by this experience. And then we see Annie expressing. I think she's absolutely terrifying in this scene because she's so smug. She's so like, this is for your own good. We're going to be together. As soon as I break your ankles, it'll be great. Everything's going to be great. I figured it out and it'll be great. And Someone hurting you for what they are telling you is your own good is to me so much scarier, at least in a conceptual way, than someone who's like, I'm the scary clown who lives in the carnival. Yes. Right. Because like, I don't have any experience with scary clowns. I don't have like aspects of scary clown scattered throughout my childhood. It's just a totally new thing to be worried about. So and I love the fact that we have set up that there is Liberace on a record or on TV, some kind of performance recording in the background, which is why we have what I think is the Moonlight Sonata playing during our hobbling scene. And it's kind of set up like the stuff that we hear in the background and rear window. If like the Moonlight Sonata played in rear window and then it was revealed to be Liberace that was playing it. (laughs) Like that's so funny. I would also love to mention that like 1990, 1980, we have two, iconic, beloved Stephen King adaptations that are about lung isolation and addiction in Colorado. One is The Shining, made by Stanley Kubrick. One is Misery, made by Rob Reiner. I, like, enjoy and respect both of these movies, but, like, Misery is a movie that I will watch probably 10 times more often in my life than The Shining. Easily. It's fun. Right, it's fun. That's the thing. Stephen King books are fun. I do feel like a movie should be fun in some way as well. Bates is on par with, on the level of, if not, if has not exceeded Nicholson's performance as villain. Oh, God. I think she's way above that because I don't really understand his performance and I totally get her. I'm like, I have known like 50 Annies in my life and they're not at this level, but they're they're angry and they've repressed their emotions and they don't know what they're throwing out there. And you're just like, I don't want to end up in your spare bedroom. It's like when mom gets that way and when dad gets that way. Yeah. Yes. Which I think is why they're such powerful villains. You're at an isolated location or you have been hobbled or whatever. But the point is that you are your return to the powerlessness of childhood if you're not actually a child, as in The Shining. Your return to the powerlessness of not having a license. Yeah. It's funny that Misery actually has so much more than The Shining does about just arbitrary parental discipline. Mm -hmm. In the book, we have this long conversation about her finding out that he has escaped his room in his wheelchair and has made like three recon 
trips in the book, but she's convinced that he's been out like seven or ten times or something because she has all these mechanisms for seeing if someone's looking in her stuff. And Paul realizes that a lot of this she would just get false positives on Mm -hmm. and, you know, believes that everyone is out to get her. So she's blaming him for a lot more than he actually did. And like to me, that like snaps right back to the experience of having a parent who's like, paranoid about your behavior and is going to punish you for something that you did not in fact actually do and you can't do anything about it it doesn't matter like I don't know so much about what makes life bearable at any stage is like whether you have some form of recourse to deal with that yeah agreed I don't know if like asking you to go on Paul through that terrifying ride is just the only way you can get an adult to recognize that maybe that's also terrifying for children without ever mm-hmm. saying it explicitly. It accomplishes many really interesting things by making our child, in this case, James Gunn. Right. I think that's why that's such good casting, because like I was <laughs> joking to you, I think this actually would be pretty good. I was like, if I were casting this movie based on the book, I would cast Billy Crystal <laughs> as Paul, totally. which like would be a good movie, but it wouldn't it wouldn't have the same effect of watching James Caan be destroyed by this situation. Um. All right, we just went hard for two hours. Yeah, that'll happen. Do we need to name a daddy or? How would we? Would you go for it, please? Well, I think that uh, I guess you know what the daddy is Frances Sternhagen. Oh, God yeah. bless her. She's the Absolutely. greatest in everything she's in. There's no arguing that. That's just the truth. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick, our fabulous producer, who uh, who edited and produced this episode, made it sound great. Thank you to Fresh Left for providing the beats that make our transition sound so great. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Thanks for following us on Instagram and Twitter, where you can find out information about stuff as it becomes available. I don't know what that means, but... <laughs> We love the folks over there and we love the engagement that happens there and we appreciate all of you being there. All right. I think that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. I'm really glad you're here. I'm so happy we get to do this. We appreciate you. You are good.